I am but one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, I will do. Welcome to the Black History 101 podcast, featuring all things Black women's history. In this episode, I will discuss Dr. Margaret Burroughs, the author of the poem that I just read. Dr. Burroughs lived from 1917 until 2010, and she is well known in Chicago and in the museum sector for helping to found what is now known as the DuSabo Museum of African American History. Dr. Burroughs wasn't only a museum founder, she was also a poet, an artist, an art historian, and an educator. In this episode, I'll introduce you to Dr. Burroughs, focusing on the 1950s and the 1960s. I'll talk about Dr. Burroughs' education to Black history, despite the repressive time in which she lived, and I'll discuss what drove her and others to start the museum in 1961. Keep listening. I have so much to share with you. But first, why is Dr. Burroughs inside the circle? Well, it may be obvious because, as you just heard, Dr. Burroughs lived and practiced in Chicago, where I'm from. But there's more to the story. If you had a chance to listen to the first episode of the podcast, you know that I attended Henry O. Tanner Elementary School on the south side of Chicago. At the school, I had several Black women teachers, teachers who, as part of the curriculum, taught me Black history, which, now that I think about it, could be directly a result of Dr. Burroughs' influence on education in the city. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Through a relationship with the DuSabo Museum and the Chicago Public School System, I was able to intern at DuSabo when I was in the eighth grade. Now, at the time, I thought it was awesome that I got to leave my school on a Wednesday afternoon and take the bus by myself to DuSable to learn from museum professionals and, on occasion, Dr. Burroughs herself. I look forward to my weekly internship where we learned about how every part of the museum functioned. We toured exhibits, we worked in the museum store, and we interacted with museum staff members. Because it was 25 years ago, I don't remember exactly everything about the internship, but I do remember Dr. Burroughs, who I knew had founded the museum, but who was currently serving as director emeritus. I knew she loved Black history, and I knew she loved teaching, and I knew she loved students. I also came to learn that she was concerned about Black students' access to our history. Interning at DuSabo Museum had a profound effect on me and my desire to study Black history formally. In high school, I was able to take a topics in Black studies class, and this solidified my decision not only to go to college, because that wasn't an option, but to get a Ph.D. in Black studies. I picked Washington University in St. Louis in part because I knew they had a Black studies department. To say DuSabo and Dr. Burroughs played a foundational role in my development as a Black public historian is an understatement. Recently, I gave a talk for Black History Month and someone asked me, what role did Chicago play in your development as a historian who focuses on Black women's history? Immediately, I thought of Dr. Burroughs and the vision she had to make Black history accessible to Chicagoans, and particularly to young Black Chicagoans like me. 
So that's why she's inside the circle. So let's start the story and begin at the beginning. Dr. Burroughs was born in 1917 in St. Rose, Louisiana. Her family moved to Chicago in 1922 as part of the Great Migration. There's a great clip from a WTTW, which is Chicago's public TV station, in a documentary where Dr. Burroughs describes this part of her life. In the clip, Dr. Burroughs speaks about how excited she was when her parents finally earned enough for their train fare to Chicago. She was so excited that she ran out of the house and onto the street, yelling that her family had $100. Her mother wasn't too happy, and she chastised Margaret for sharing the family's business, but Margaret couldn't contain herself in her excitement for what that money meant. It meant her family would be traveling north in pursuit of their freedom dreams. After arriving to Chicago, Dr. Burroughs was educated in the Chicago public school system, and she graduated from Inglewood High School. She and poet Gwendolyn Brooks were classmates at Inglewood. Dr. Burroughs received a tuition scholarship to attend Howard University in Washington, D.C., but she couldn't go because her family was not able to come up with the rest of the funds she needed for transportation, room, and board. Undeterred, the young Margaret continued her education in the city with the help of a mentor and teacher, Mary Ryan. With Miss Ryan's help, she took and passed the entrance examination for the Teachers College at Chicago Normal College, the university now known as Chicago State University. She earned her elementary and secondary school teaching certificates and soon began working as a substitute teacher for the Chicago public school system. Simultaneously, she applied to the Art Institute and earned her Bachelor's of Fine Arts. In 1948, she earned her Master's of Fine Arts in Art Education. From 1946 to 1968, she taught art at DuSable High School, and from 1969 until 1979, she taught at Wilson Junior College, now known as Kennedy King College. But teaching was just one of the many activities Dr. Burroughs engaged in during the 1950s and 60s, especially as they related to community development, art, art education, etc. But Dr. Burroughs lived during an era where some considered community activists a code word for communist, especially if one engaged in or associated with those who were considered radical. To be clear, in the 1950s, at the height of the Red Scare, one could be branded a communist if you raised your voice for justice for black folks, if you protested discrimination and segregation, or if you just hung out or socialized with people who did any of these things. Two of Dr. Burroughs's good friends and influences were the Robesons, Paul and Islanda. Dr. Burroughs greatly admired Paul, supported him, and often when he was in town, she offered him lodging. In her autobiography, Dr. Burroughs wrote of an encounter she had with the Board of Education who were hunting for teachers who they believed had communist sympathies. Take a listen. 
1952, when I was teaching art at DuSabo High School, the Chicago Board of Education called me requesting a formal meeting. Although this was an unusual occurrence, I didn't think at first that any harm could come from it. In fact, I actually had the nerve to think that I was being singled out for a promotion. <laughs> of course, blacks were often singled out in negative ways at that time and their jobs put on the line. So just to be sure, I called the teachers union and requested a representative come with me. They refused, telling me not to worry that I should just go down and answer their questions. Although I was a staunch supporter of Paul Robeson, an unapologetic communist, and had many friends and visitors whose politics may have been more left than right, I did not believe that I was about to have my political beliefs and activities questioned. But I would soon learn that the agenda set by the board was just that. Nothing of the sort was disclosed to me in so many words, however, and the meeting began innocently as if it were no more than a progress report about school activities. As the questioning progressed, however, my level of discomfort rose, and my intuition warned me that there was a second motive to the interrogation. I was asked about a jailed communist, Earl Browder, whose petition for release I had signed. I was asked about Paul Robeson and why he would send his son to school in Russia. And then, in a roundabout way, they asked me about people I worked with. The board was hunting for the names of other teachers it believed to have communist sympathies or inclinations. But I, believing a person's political and religious beliefs to be solely their own business, refused to name anyone. Their final directive to me was not to tell anyone about the meeting or the questions. But of course, as soon as I left the building, I called all the teachers I knew to inform them of what had happened and what to expect if they should be called down to. I'm not sure if anyone else was ever called before the board or not. I, of course, was a strong advocate of black history, which was considered subversive in itself at that time. God forbid that you would teach Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth in class. And if you had anything to say about Nat Turner or Denmark Vesey, well, you had better just keep it to yourself. While my students were painting, I would be in the middle of a discussion about the Scottsboro boys, and I look over and see the white principal appear at the classroom door. Turning back to the class, I'd say, and that's how Betsy Ross came to sew the flag. Now, boys and girls, let's talk about Patrick Henry. My students knew enough to hold in their chuckles until the principal had passed the door. As soon as he was gone, we go back to Clarence Darrow Scottsboro's defense or Ida B. Wells' upbringing or Mary McLeod Bethune's activism. So Dr. Burroughs taught black history in her art class during the 1950s, the height of the Red Scare. Interrogations like the one Dr. Burroughs experienced mirrored what was happening on the federal level, stemming from the actions of Wisconsin politician Joseph McCarthy, who served in the U.S. Senate from 1947 until 1957, and also the House Un-American Committee, which interrogated folks the government suspected of holding communist sympathies. Entertainers like Paul Robeson were targeted, blacklisted, and accused of treason. Teaching black history was seen as subversive 
and it was dangerous. Political theorist Sharice Burden-Stelly has written about the connections between anti-communism and anti-blackness, especially since the government targeted many people in the fight for black freedom, especially those who critiqued racism, capitalism, imperialism and militarism. In the show notes, I'll include an interview with Dr. Sharice Burden-Stelly that interrogates these issues. So can you believe that it was in this atmosphere that Dr. Burroughs and her comrades dreamed up and founded the first or one of the first grassroots black history museums in the nation? While there is so much more that I can share about the context of that part of the story, I'm going to leave that part to you for your homework. And so reading about communism and about civil rights activism during the Cold War will be a part of your homework. And it'll be what you can read in a book entitled Black Public History in Chicago, Civil Rights Activism from World War II into the Cold War by historian Ian Roxborough-Smith. In Dr. Burroughs' autobiography, though, she discusses what prompted her and her second husband, Charles, to start the museum. And I want to share with you what she said. The idea of our home as a museum danced through my head once again. Through the years, Charles and I had collected items, books, and artifacts related to Black history, which we occasionally marched out to show our friends from the salon. The folks of the salon enjoyed them and would call us from time to time to ask if they could bring their children over to see our collection. We certainly did not mind. Our topics of conversation at the salon routinely ran into the areas of Black culture and Black history. In fact, there was a group of us from the salon who were particularly interested in Black history. Of course, that segment included Charles and me, but there were several other school teachers who recognized that very little was taught about the positive contributions of African Americans in the Chicago school system. That fact led us to think about the need for our youth to learn about their heritage and the impact such a thing as an Ebony Museum of Negro History would have. For years, I've been, quote-unquote, bootlegging such information to my DuSable High School art students after discovering how dangerous it could be to talk about Black history around walls that could, quote, grow ears. I like the sound of the Ebony Museum of Negro History, so to try it on for size, I suppose, I had it listed in the telephone directory with the phone number for us at the coach house. I remember one Saturday morning in 1960 when the doorbell rang. I went downstairs to answer it and an elderly black minister appeared on the doorstep. Is the museum open? He said to me. No, at that time, we didn't really have a museum. But somehow or another, I got a quirk of humor and answered, oh, yes, sir. The museum is open today. Come right up. I guided the good minister up the stairs into the large studio room. Here we had photographs and paintings hung on the walls, sculptures on the shelves, and bookcases filled with books on black literature and history. The gentleman walked slowly around the room, examining things closely. Finally, he asked me, is there an admission charge? Oh, no, sir, I said. Today is a free day. Please, won't you register, sir, I asked, placing a notebook before him. 
He looked carefully around at the objects on the wall and in the bookcases, and then before leaving, he turned to me and said, Well, young lady, you've made a very good start. I congratulate your committee. I'm going to have my parishioners visit and support the museum. Yes, you've made a very good start. For some time thereafter, I had friends rolling with laughter when I told them about the gentleman who had come to visit the museum. But the more I talked about it, the more real it seemed to become. Gradually, the idea of a real museum rooted itself within me and took hold. So from 1961 until 1973, Dr. Burroughs operated the museum out of her home. And remember, this was while she was still teaching. In 1973, the museum moved into a vacant Chicago Park District building that had formerly been a Chicago Police Department holding facility. And it was not lost on many that what had been a facility of incarceration, surveillance, and punishment was now a holder, an archive, and a teacher of Black history. Around the time that the museum moved into the Chicago Park District building, it also changed its name from the Ebony Museum of Negro History to the DuSable Museum of African American History. And Dr. Burroughs recalls that the name change was to bring attention to Jean-Baptiste Pointe de Sable, a fur trader and the first non-Indigenous settler in the area now known as Chicago. Now, during the time when DuSabo moved to its current location in the 1970s, DuSabo was virtually unknown. He was originally born in Haiti, and he was the son of an enslaved Haitian woman and a French seaman. Some regarded him as the quote-unquote founder of Chicago, since he was the first non-Indigenous settler. In a country so keen to recognize founders, discoverers, etc., the fact that DuSable had been ignored and nearly erased spoke to his identity as a black diasporic man. He also married an indigenous woman, Kitahawa, who was from the Potawatomi Nation. DuSable's life history, his background, and his relationship with indigenous communities, coupled with the fact that he moved around in the Midwest, makes his story a complicated one, especially as we learn about black and indigenous relationships in history. There's so much more to this story. And as part of your homework, I want you to add Tiffany King's The Black Shoals, Offshore Formations of Black and Native Studies to your reading list. This will help illuminate some of the relationships between Black and Indigenous studies as well as Black and Indigenous relationships. And I think it'll help put DuSable in a, in a better context. DuSable the man. So one of the major goals of Dr. Burroughs and the DuSable Museum stemmed from Dr. Burroughs's background as an educator. She wanted the museum to be a place of learning, especially about Black history, and especially since the curriculum in the Chicago public schools ignored this facet of Black history. In a 1963 poem, she wrote about the reasons that she started DuSable, and they really hinge on what she wanted to share with 
black children. The poem she wrote was entitled, What Shall I Tell My Children Who Were Black? Why don't you take a listen as she recites it? I think this poem embodies the origin of the DuSable Museum. Okay. And it's called, What Shall I Tell My Children Who Are Black? Okay. And the, the subtitle is Reflections of an African-American Mother. Absolutely. <clears throat> written in, this one was written in 1963 mm -hmm. on occasion of the 100th anniversary of the emancipation of our people, mm -hmm. 18, 1863, 1963. What shall I tell my children who are black of what it means to be a captive in this dark skin? What shall I tell my dear ones, fruit of my womb, of how beautiful they are when everywhere they turn they are faced with abhorrence of everything that is black? Villains are black with black hearts. A black cow gives no milk. A black hen lays no eggs. Bad news comes bordered in black. Black is evil, they say. And evil is black and devil's food is black. All that is bad is black. Mm -hmm. What shall I tell my dear ones who've been raised in a white world? A place where white has been made to represent all that is good and pure and fine and decent. Where clouds are white and dolls and heaven. Heaven surely is a white, white place filled with angels robed in white and cotton candy and ice cream and milk and ruffled Sunday dresses and dream houses and long sleek Cadillacs and angels food is white all that is good is white what can I say therefore when my black child comes home to me in tears because a playmate identical to himself has called him black big lip flat nose and nappy headed what will he think when I dry his tears and whisper yes that is true, but you are no less beautiful and dear. How shall I lift up his head and get him to square his shoulders, to look his adversaries in the eye, confident in the knowledge of his worth, serene under his sable skin and proud of his own beauty? What can I do to give him the strength that he may come through life's adversities as a whole human being, unwarped and human, in a world that is full of biased laws and inhuman practices, that he might survive and survive he must. For who knows? Perhaps this black child of mine here bears the genius to discover the cure for cancer or the brilliance to chart the course for the expiration of the universe. Mm -hmm. So he must survive for the good of all humanity. He must and will survive. I have drunk deeply of late from the fountain of my black culture. I have sat at the knee of and learned from other Africa. I have discovered the truth of my heritage, the truth so often obscured and omitted, and I find I have much to say to all of my black children. I will lift up their heads in proud blackness and tell them the story of their fathers and their fathers' fathers. And I shall take them into a way back time of kings and queens who rule the Nile, who raise the pyramids, who measure the stars, who discover the laws of music and mathematics. I will tell them of a black people, our black people, upon whose backs have been built the wealth of three continents, Europe, Africa, and America. And I will tell them this and more. Knowledge of his heritage shall be his weapon and his armor. It will make him strong enough to win any battle he may face. And since this story is so often obscured and omitted, I must sacrifice to find it for my children, even as I sacrifice to feed, clothe, and shelter them. This I would do for them if I love them. Nobody else would do it for me. I must find the truth of heritage for myself and pass it on to them. And in years to come, I believe, because I have armed them with the truth, my children and their children's children will venerate me, for it is the truth that will make us free. That poem is so 
moving to me, especially the part where she writes and says, I have drunk deeply of late from the foundation of my black culture, sat at the knee and learned from Mother Africa, discovered the truth of my heritage, the truth so often obscured and omitted. And I find I have much to say to my black children. I will lift up their heads in proud blackness with the story of their fathers and their father's fathers, and I shall take them into a way back time of kings and queens who ruled the Nile and measured the stars and discovered the laws of mathematics upon whose backs have been built the wealth of continents. I will tell them this and more. And his heritage shall be his weapon and his armor will make him strong enough to win any battle he may face. And since this story is often obscured, I must sacrifice to find it. I love the connections to Africa, especially how Dr. Burroughs moves beyond abjection, rejecting a narrative about the continent that would see it and its contributions as impoverished. Restoring a narrative about the contributions of those who lived on the continent. In this excerpt, heritage and history also are both protection and weapons. And although she isn't specific about the battles that her descendants will face, we can make an educated assumption that they include any form of injustice. Lastly, Dr. Burroughs leaves us with a challenge that we must sacrifice to find this history. Dr. Burroughs served as the director of the museum until 1983. After that time, she served as director emeritus, continuing to shape the museum and fundraise for its important activities. By the 1970s and the 1980s, her efforts were recognized in Chicago and beyond. In 1975, she received the President's Humanitarian Award. In 1977, the Chicago Defender named her as one of Chicago's most influential women. And by 1986, the late mayor, Harold Washington, proclaimed February 1st, Margaret Burroughs Day. And so this brings us to the 1980s. And the 1980s is when I come into the story. I was born on the south side of Chicago in a context steeped with Black history, a context Dr. Burroughs helped to shape. Hmm. Wow. I am so grateful. So as we end this episode, I want to leave you with some takeaways as well as your homework. So what are our takeaways? Dr. Margaret Burroughs, the founder of DuSable Museum of African American History, taught black history in the context of considerable repression and danger. Despite these risks, she knew this was one of her contributions because for her, generations of future black children needed the protection of their heritage and their history. And that's why I began the episode reading Dr. Burroughs' poem, I am but one, but I am one. Also, the story of DuSabo Museum, especially when we think about the history of the man for which it is named, allows us to rethink about rethink the emergence of the museum as well as think about how black and indigenous public histories collide in the public sphere. It was not a coincidence that Jean-Baptiste Point du Sabo's history was marginalized, and it was not a coincidence that a black woman led the efforts to memorialize his contributions, especially through this museum related to the history of black folks in the nation. 
So, your homework. I didn't even have a chance to discuss Dr. Burroughs' contributions as a visual artist, so I want you to do some research in that area. On Facebook or Twitter, share with me a favorite piece of Dr. Burroughs' art that you like and why. Also, a couple of books to add to your reading list include Life with Margaret, the official autobiography of Dr. Margaret T.G. Burroughs. Also, Black Public History in Chicago, Civil Rights Activism from World War II into the Cold War by Ian Roxborough Smith. Everything Man, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson by Shanna Redman. The Black Shoals, Offshore Formations of Black and Native Studies by Tiffany King. You have a lot to do and probably a little bit of time, but that's okay. Go do some homework and tell me what you have learned. Bye. Thank you.